All right, everyone, welcome back. This is Ryan Selkis, and you're listening to Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I interview crypto's top builders, investors, and personalities to discuss the key trends in the industry. You can discover more about Masari at masari.io. But for now, let's get right into the episode. It's going to be a good one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you want to trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with. For exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space, check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another Unqualified Opinion from Masari. I'm your host, Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots. Uh, really excited today to have uh, Chris Berniski, uh, co-founder and, and partner of Placeholder VC, uh, with us to talk about a lot of things. We're going to pierce the veil and, and try to make sense of things uh, like crypto valuation, uh, whether anything is rationally priced in this market. Um, we'll talk, touch on governance a little bit, uh, and we will uh, talk about the smart contract wars and some of the coming sell-side pressure uh, that uh, mainstream investors can expect from this just sea of SAFs and, and private placements that are ultimately going to get liquidity over the course of the next 18 months. Um, and there's a number of different directions we can go from there. But, um, many rabbit holes. Yeah, many, many rabbit holes that we can go down. But, but Chris and I have known each other for about five years now um, and, uh, and was one of the earliest, uh, he was one of the earliest research analysts to actually put forward a full enterprise or institutional investment thesis um, for, for the asset class. Um, it was the dawn of the new asset class. Was that the name of it? Uh, ringing the bell. Ringing the bell. It was co-published co with Coinbase and, and, and Adam White. Um, and this was back when you were at uh, ARK Invest. Um, so talk, well, why don't we just start there? Let's, let's talk a little bit about um, your start in the industry. Uh, how you got sucked in and just your trajectory and acceleration from uh, a, a relatively young analyst to one that is now running one of the largest crypto venture funds um, and, and just how wild a ride that's been. It has been a wild ride. We, we have been on a wild ride Wrote together. a book, you know. So um, I actually remember the first time we met. It was, uh, I think, late 2014. We were... Um, at Second Market, what was mm -hmm. then Second Market's office, 
Uh, it was you, me, and Barry. Mm-hmm. I remember I was a young kid. I just I wasn't even six months into New York City. Um, I was learning everything about finance, really. I mean, I studied ocean systems in undergrad, um, and that was biochem and physics all around the ocean because I wanted to work around the ocean because then I would be living near the ocean and then I could surf every day. Um, life took a wild turn, as it, it tends to. But I specifically remember that meeting because I felt like such a kid. Um, and I remember, I think, they had hyped up, or Second Market, or whoever it was, maybe it was Grayscale, had hyped up, oh, there's this Wall Street analyst coming in from the buy side, and he's going to do a report on Bitcoin. And I remember we met, and you were just like, you're such a kid. <laughs> I don't think I used those exact words. You didn't um, use those exact words. Uh, uh, but, but I remember going through, uh, kind of section by section, and it was, you know, there, there was some harsh feedback probably like this is wrong, this is just wrong, this is not really and well, I don't understand the section. And then to your credit, you came back like a few weeks later and it was it was like a 10x improvement and and, and a kind of every step along the way. Well um, you gave me a lot of really good feedback. Yeah. I think I mean I I didn't mean it to be slight in, in the least because it it's very on brand. It was super valuable <laughs> for me. Um, and that was, you know, how in the early days we learned about Bitcoin. Um, it's really going, uh, saying, I understand this, but I don't understand this. Um, and so that whole progression, you know, it culminated in ARK becoming the first, um, public fund manager to give its investors Bitcoin exposure. We got really fortunate with timing there. You know, we did that, um, September, October, November of 2015. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, BTC doubled from the low 200s to the low 400s. And here ARK was the only public funds with BTC exposure. So that started to kick off a lot of media interest. Um, you know, I met Jack Tater, the, uh, who I ultimately co-authored crypto assets with at uh, Consensus 2016, it was. Mm-hmm. 20, yeah, I think it was 2016. Um, we started writing the book that fall. Um, but at that time, you know, so Consensus 2016, I remember the Dow was like starting to percolate. And that mm-hmm. summer, the Dow, um, got really big, Ethereum rallied into that, but then when the Dow blew up, Ethereum crashed. End of 16, ETH was beneath $10. Um, and so we were just kind of writing, kind of in a languishing crypto market. We didn't expect 2017 to necessarily be what it was. I don't think anyone in the industry mm-hmm. expected that. Um, because it felt like an order of magnitude more than what 2013 was. And you experienced 2013 more than I did. Um, I kind of got like, the aftermath, kind of after a plane goes up and lands, all that turbulence um, that I experienced in 2014. Uh, but then, you know, published the book in, in the back half of 2017, and it was really interesting to see how much interest there was um, in crypto. It was an overwhelming amount of interest. Um, and uh, end of 2017 is when myself, Joel Manegro, and Brad Burnham uh, got placeholder off the ground and raised a nine-figure institutional-only fund at the time, um, which you know felt like a big deal, um, we tend to be overstated or understated um, with our PR, other than my loud Twitter handle, I guess. Um, and as loud as you can be. As loud as I can be. I try to I try to work more than I talk, um, but still a voice. Um, and here we are, you know, over halfway into placeholders first fund, um, feeling really good about the portfolio. And feeling really good about crypto. 
And and so a couple things to unpack there. So you you started writing the book. Um, were you at that point planning to get um, onto the next gig, or, or was this just something you were going to do as a side project with Arc? When when did the yeah. the, the ambition start? The funds really kick in a high gear. Kicked in a high gear fall of 2016 um, because Joel and I were becoming close friends. So I met Joel start in 2016 mm-hmm. um, at a conference at NYU, just a single day conference that had like Peter Todd, uh, Joe Lubin was there, I think Vitalik piped in. It was a 50 person conference. It was maybe the best single day conference I've been to in crypto. Um, but Joel spoke. Um, I was like, wow, this guy's brilliant. I want to talk with him. Um, I was too shy to speak with him actually, but when I published the new asset class white paper that was with Coinbase, which was a portfolio company in mm-hmm. USBs, and so I reached out to Joel and we had coffee the next day um, and the friendship just kept going from there. And then um, I remember USB was diligencing Polychain um, towards the end of 2016, so I was talking with Joel a lot about that deal um, and it really led us to investigate, well, what's the best way to run fund in crypto? And we just through that theory or um, investigation, we came down to, well, we would want a venture fund or a venture structure, and we can get into the differences if you'd like, mm-hmm. but a venture structure or a hedge fund structure. And so, you know, one thing led to the, to the next, and pretty shortly thereafter, early 2017, we were like, well, why don't we run a venture fund? And, um, Joel's mentor is Brad Burnham, who founded USB with Greg Wilson. My mentor is Kathy Wood, who founded ARC. We talked with Brad and Kathy. They both gave us the blessing. And so really, spring of 17, we were starting to work towards it. Um, officially left ARC June, July. And then Placeholder was incorporated, coincidentally, on the day Bitcoin forked, uh, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash. So August 1st, 2017, Placeholder incorporated and then it took us a half year to raise our first fund, and we were in business deploying capital started in 2018. So we can um, maybe talk a little bit more about fund structures in a minute, right? Because okay. I think the, um, the different fund structures and, and kind of the nuance of how different firms are thinking about entering and exiting deals yep. um, really matters once we start talking about price discovery and valuation. Yep. So, um, you you sent over some notes. Uh, first of all, maybe one of the only guests that sent over notes, which is kind of par for the course and kind of in line with my expectations. But um, uh, I, there there was one that uh, one thing that you highlighted, which which I think is a good jumping off point, and I haven't really heard it discussed this way, which is um, just capitalization methods and the spectrum of capital to labor. Yep. Um, so you know my understanding of, of, of this, and I want you to kind of drill down and, and, and you know give us your mental model. But um, basically, are you providing work to the network and then getting a return, or are you providing uh, capital as a venture fund or as an ICO investor yeah. uh, and then expecting a return? Yeah. And and that is probably going to lead to two very different um, sets of incentives. Uh, for the participants in the network and sets of behaviors and, and, and maybe even like cultural differences between these protocols. So um, let's unpack that a little bit because sure. until we uh, have that as a starting point, it's really tough to talk about relative valuation and pricing and, yes. and fair value. Yes. Okay, let's do it. Forgive me if I go on a monologue um, but or interrupt me at any point. But if we rewind in time to um, the birth of the idea of a joint stock equity company, right? Um, that was really a means to raise capital 
um, to go on a long-term journey, merchant journeys at the time, um, the Dutch, uh, to go on a journey which would require a lot of labor, right? So you were raising capital to pay the labor, also to buy, to, to spend the capex on the boat and all this stuff. Um, go get a bunch of riches from foreign lands and bring them back and hopefully make more money than was put into it. Um, but there was a good balance of, of capital and labor. Um, now, over time, with software and with inequities, um, you still need a lot of capital, but once you're up at scale within software, you can produce each incremental unit at zero marginal cost. Mm -hmm. And so the returns to capital are becoming greater and greater and greater because once you get the system set up, you're just printing money with each new unit of software sold or mm -hmm. whatever it may be. And so there's this imbalance that is popping up, in my opinion, in equities where shareholders, the capital holders in equities, um, are getting too much of the profits. Right? And so that is ideally something that we can fix within crypto. Um, now, a crypto network is also capitalized, um, and it's capitalized, as you said, um, along the spectrum of, of capital and labor. And if we go and we look at something like BTC, BTC won a lot of goodwill early on because it was really just labor that allowed you to earn BTC. Because this is the hobbyist days, right? Running mining on CPUs, you could have had this laptop here, um, and it would slow it down a bit, but running in the background, earning yourself BTC. A bit of capital in there, but mostly labor. Mm -hmm. um, BTC over time, I would say, has uh, trended towards being capital intensive, right? As it's industrialized its mining base, and it takes more and more capital to actually buy the machines and run those situations to, to earn the BTC. Um, but we'll come back to this uh, with price discovery. There is a cost structure that forces selling the BTC over time. So mm -hmm. I think the BTC is quite a good balance of capital and labor. Um, Ethereum was slightly different in that they raised capital up front, right? At the time, that caused uproar. Um, it was a scam and you know they're taking people's money um, but really that was kind of a very traditional we're going to raise capital to build the software we're not going to raise too too much capital I mean they still raised a lot for the time um, but in 2017 terms they raised relatively little but that was capital up front and then you had labor once the network launched again earning the asset mm -hmm. um, again balance in 2017 I think we fell out of balance, right? Um, Ethereum was such an effective financing platform that made it so easy to capitalize a crypto network purely with capital that people went bonkers with capital. Now, um, the, 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 the problem is um, when you just capitalize with capital, you get a lot of ill will um, from the community because capital tends to be concentrated, at least in our current form of capitalism, um, and you also have very little cost structure um, in terms of the people actually supporting the networks. Um, and so this is where we transition into price discovery, where I see a lot of the networks, or at least what I'm expecting, networks that purely capitalize with capital. So there's a lot of the big ICOs, especially the high-flying ICOs, um, where they purely capitalize with capital and then we're kind of closed um, collaboration mechanisms, they didn't allow much external labor input, when they list at these really high prices with high expectations, they're trending down, 
right? Like if you look at these charts, they're turning down, they're trying to find their cost within a commodity theory, you trend down until your marginal cost of production. Um, and that's where we potentially get into a really pro problematic arena for some of these assets that have very little cost to produce um, because they have very few laborers. Um, they're not sent. You can make the argument that this will all improve over time. But what I'm seeing is if you set your expectations too high with a really high market price and really your cost was just the capital that went into it, but you're trying to mark things up really high, the market kind of sniffs that out and may in some cases trend back to the cost of the original capital. Mm -hmm. That is so different from the charts of BTC, ETH, or a lot of these networks that include a lot of labor, include a lot of external inputs, where they start super low, low expectations, you're just earning. BTC didn't have a market price for two years, um, and they're trending up, and as they trend up, the laborers have cost structures that require them to sell. Um, whereas in an ICO, you have capital, there's a time value of money, but it doesn't force selling the way when you start and you're trending up as Ethereum and BTC have, and you're creating, it's this really organic price discovery where you hit new levels, those become support, you hang out, you consolidate, you hit new levels, as the utility of the network goes up, as mm -hmm. the holders go up, all these things. And so, you know, I just kind of had this aha around, okay, um, and to some people it might be an obvious thing, but you can't fool the market, right? If you just capitalize with capital and you allow very little labor, very little work, very little cost to go into your network before launch, to the market, it might trend down the cost. And that is so different from the organic rise of starting low and building out with capital and labor over time. So first of all, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I've always thought about this slightly differently, mm -hmm. uh, or, or at least use different words, but I think that the same theory is, is in play. Um, and that is to distinguish some of these communities between uh, those that have missionaries and those that have mercenaries, right? <laughs> so if you're thinking about uh, starting a company, you want to find the other misfits that are going to come in the room and bootstrap with you on some crazy idea, and then you capitalize, you know, later. Yeah. Versus raising a ton of money up front and then just hiring kind of the best, best available people at, at, at market rates. You're going to have a fundamentally different culture. Yes. Um, and I would argue one that is weaker at, at the core. I think this becomes an order or orders of magnitude more important when you're talking about uh, a monetary premium. Mm -hmm. Because other than a monetary premium, there's almost no fundamental valuation drivers. We'll come back to that one. I will argue, and then we can, we can debate this back and forth. Um, but there's almost no real network activity or um, or fundamental value drivers for, for some of these networks that do not have a monetary premium, right? So um, if you're going to create money, you need the origin story, you need kind of the mysticism about, uh, about the project. And even though Ethereum was an ICO, I think Vitalik is such a, a singular, unique figure in, in that community. It, it, it almost has like a little bit of mysticism around the world computer and the, the decentralized so everything. So and and it's kind of backed into becoming money. Well, it's so much labor, like it's been four exactly. years, over four years since Ethereum launched, and so much blood, sweat, and tears have gone into that network for four years now. Um, and I think that only happens with someone like Vitalik as the benevolent leader. Whether you say he's you know, in charge of everything or not, we know that he doesn't actually control the protocol anymore. 
but uh, his ethos kind of set the tone yes. and created that culture of missionaries yes. that allowed that to flourish. I don't see that in other networks right now. Yeah, not as many. Um, and this is where Bitcoin and Ether, I think, long run, um, we will look back and view them as very similar um, and, and quite different from a lot of these more next-generation smart contract platforms. Um, because I definitely agree um, that Vitalik has done a good job, Vitalik and his crew, you know, as well, of creating um, the cult of Ethereum, just like there's the cult of Bitcoin. Um, and this is maybe a more philosophical thing, but I uh, very deeply believe that we only value the things that we work for. Um, and so, like, this is a common problem if you're born into a wealthy family. If you have all the wealth in the world, you may not actually value it. You may not be inspired to work for it. You may not be inspired to work for anything, so you can end up very depressed and not valuing anything. Um, on the opposite side of things, you know, if, if you start out from a lower base and really work for things, you relish every victory that you have. Um, and like when I look back at Ethereum's early days, it was dicey. The foundation almost ran out of money. Right, because they raised in the uh, middle of 14, they raised in BTC, um, BTC kept falling, uh, foundation ran into patch problems, people were not there to get rich. People were there, they were idealists, they were working their asses off. Um, and because of that, they came to love Ethereum, just as the Bitcoin community did similar things and came to love Bitcoin. I would say, with the ICO boom, a lot of people got dollar, dollar signs in their eyes. Um, but you can't, you can't buy love, right? You can't buy commitment. Um, we're getting a We're getting a This is you know, maybe a side of me that I keep offline more. Um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right that we're not seeing, um, and it's not to make blanket, blanket statements. There are really good networks out there other than Bitcoin and Ethereum, but those two are definitely the most robust communities because they've earned it. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about price discovery. Uh, more generally speaking, so, so Bitcoin and Ethereum, it, it, by, I think most people would acknowledge that uh, there are these peaks and valleys, but generally it's healthy Start because if there's this stepwise function where people get way ahead of themselves with what can, could be possible with these uh, technologies and assets, um, things come crashing down. But, but during those peaks, it's basically the best recruiting tool uh, that the industry has. Organic yeah, recruiting tool because bull then you see yeah. the bull market brings in another wave of folks that build during the bear market and consolidation. And yeah. then there's, there's another rally. At least that's the way that it's been for, for, for basically three or four cycles now. Um, and every single time the cycle is, is very different in terms of the audience that is attracted. At first it was a hardcore market capitalists. Uh, then it was more tinkerers and, and, and gold bugs and, and more mainstream libertarians. Uh, in the last cycle, we started to see kind of message from Wall Street come in, right? Well, um, Wall Street's also facing I think I include myself maybe in, in, in that general cohort and, 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 and you if you want to join. Um, and, and I think um, with some of the institutional tools that are being built now, um, there's kind of a bifurcation of there's a professionalization around the Bitcoin ecosystem, and then there's still this like wild west of everything else. So um, Ethereum's kind of middle ground maybe between the ICO market, because it was the first ICO in some ways, um, and Bitcoin, and a fair launch, you know, proof of work type system. But how do you think about price discovery for some of these assets that have just started with 
an enormous amount of capital from yeah. them up front, and, and yeah. now we're going to have to slowly distribute these token supplies over time. In some cases, the team doesn't even necessarily have control over the pace of that distribution. Yeah, or they have too much control. Mm -hmm. um, so this is going to be really tricky. Um, and for what it's worth, um, placeholder did not invest in a uh, single, uh, say, brand name smart contract platform pre-launch competitor. Um, in terms of smart contracts, we have Ethereum and Polkadot. And Polkadot, I don't even think of as directly a smart contract platform competitor. It can be, but it can be other things. Um, so we stand out of you know the Dfinities, Hashgraphs, um, and and the, the high flyers. Not because we had the theory that I'm going to put forth all worked out, um, but you know Brad is often like. These are really pricey. Should we wait until they list um, to to see what what the price action is then? Which was interesting because we're a venture firm, right? And Brad's a, a, a thirty year um, venture capitalist, but his intuition there was really interesting. Um, these teams didn't really need us as an investor. Um, they had all the money and investors that they needed. So anyway, we stayed out, and right now I feel good about that. Um, I'm not here to try and engage in Schadenfreude. How do you say that word? Schadenfreude? Schadenfreude. There we go. I just said it with more authority. <laughs> <laughs> that's the trick to life. I have no idea that that's accurate. Um, but so what I think might happen with some of these teams that have a lot of capital, and, and especially the layer ones that are just launching now, and we have a whole roster of them for Q4 and into Q1 of 2020, um, is if they come out. Um, and they're quite inflationary, but they also have super high throughput in their block space. Um, and this has been, you know, a selling card for these, these platforms to raise money. We're super high throughput. We can reach Visa scale. You know, there's no clogging, um, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is, um, and this was reinforced to me when I was looking at a, doing a demo with a staking platform recently. All of the earnings to the supply side, the laborers at that point, are just inflation earnings. But the actual transaction fees are super low. I mean, I was on the platform looking at you know, them participating in a few different networks, and we're talking transaction fees were 1 to 10 basis points of inflation fees. So less than 1% of inflation fees. And I think you know, Ethereum is like around 7% right now. I don't know what BTC is. But with Ethereum and BTC, we are seeing transaction fees rise, take share from inflation rewards. And that, that should happen over time. For Bitcoin, it eventually has to be 100% transaction fees. What, so what am I getting at? What I'm getting at with the new smart contract platforms is if they're too high throughput, um, there's actually no scarcity in the blocks or the DAG or whatever the, the uh, structure is. And if there's no scarcity, then there's very little incentive to pay high fees or fees at all for submitting a transaction. And so then what you might end up having um, is you're just having inflation with no, no one paying for the economic value of the network, right? And if we, if we look at transaction fees or we say transaction fees are people paying to use this network as the growth of the economy, if that is not growing, then any inflation um, is, 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 is not really being um, dampened by growing use, right? Like, if you, if you think about monetary policy, you will experience price inflation if you are inflating faster than the economy is growing. This mm -hmm. is the MV equals PQ. 
So what we're talking about is really high inflation while potentially the transaction fee economy for these networks isn't growing. And so if you lose consumer confidence or market confidence because they're like, well, transaction fees or earnings aside from inflation are never going to go up because they're too high throughput, then you could have some pretty vicious downward spirals. Um, I don't think that you know this is doomsday for all the platforms. I think a lot of them will sell off for a period and find a bottom. Um, and you know we're seeing that in some of the ones that launched already. And then it could be a few years of building of you know really getting people to build at scale applications. Um, I think that the benefit. So while it could be a lot of pain for the next gen smart contract platforms for the next year or two. Um, or three, I think what's good about that actually is it will collapse the cost of building and running uh, decentralized applications, right? And that should open up um, our, our innovation sort of ecosystem because when you collapse the cost, you make it more accessible to more people, right? So short to medium term pain, likely long term gain, and we'll see how Ethereum ends up reacting ultimately to the smart contract platform competitors. But again, short to medium term, I think the economics are potentially dicey. And, and I think this might be where you and I disagree a little bit, and, and, and we've had this conversation offline in the past. Um, but I want, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong or if you're thinking on this has changed. Um, so I've, I remember uh, it was uh, you, me, Steve McKean, uh, yeah. uh, uh, one other uh, person was on that call with. Lou, right? This is back in like 2017 okay. about like the fundamental value drivers for the economy. Oh, this right? was and a webinar. Yeah, 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 and you'd gone through your 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 model um, that was in crypto assets. Um, and I disagreed at the time, and, and I, I still believe this pretty strongly, that um, you've basically only got three types of assets. You've got monetary assets, you've got security tokens, which don't really exist yet, or security-like instruments that will have some uh, intrinsic value that you can price according to you know, traditional valuation frameworks. And then you've got this kind of middle tier of protocols um, where you have to be securing uh, either network fees, which you touched on, um, or uh, some type of scarce digital resource like bandwidth or file storage or computes or you know, wh whatever. Um, but unless there's something transaction fees, but you still pay transaction fees for those resources. Sure, right. Um, so I, I put that kind of in, in, in one bucket. Um, but like securities, there's still something underneath them that, that you can you can value, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, you've got these monetary assets that are priced. On the other, you've got all the other assets that you need to think about, like what what evaluation mm -hmm. look like, mm -hmm. other than greater fool theory. Um, where where does MVPQ uh, come in, and, and and I know you wrote a post about how some of your thinking had changed with that yeah, original model. So, so maybe talk about the original model uh, and how you thought about tokens, and then what levers, if any, changed that okay. you outlined earlier this year, and if that's kind of the yeah, latest yeah. In, in your thinking. No, that's great. Um, well, let's 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 go to say the current state of thinking and sleeve in MV equals PQ. Um, and let's just define MVPQ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so to start, um, I think the premise I operate under is um, all of the world's assets, existing and to be created, um, will someday be uh, created, custodian, 
custodied and transferred on blockchains mm-hmm. if they are truly the lowest cost means to create custody or transfer. Um, and so we're dealing with the whole world uh, of assets. And so what I did this spring is I actually went back to a paper that I used with the Bitcoin Ring New Asset Class paper, uh, a paper by Robert Greer called What is an Asset Class Anyway? Mm-hmm. And in that paper, um, he talks about three super classes of assets. Um, there are capital assets, um, which are income producing assets of some kind. Mm-hmm. So securities, income producing real estate, these kinds of things, bonds. Um, then, and, and, and those capital assets, um, you're basically taking uh, the present value of their future cash flows. And there are different ways to do that, um, but that's the basic premise. Then there are consumable transformable assets, which are more your traditional commodities, mm-hmm. um, but also, for example, gold has consumable transformable use cases. It's not off-putting a value flow, mm-hmm. um, but it is providing directly consumable or transformable utility into other things. So that's the second superclass bucket. Third superclass bucket is store value assets. Store value assets don't produce value flows like capital assets and don't really have consumable transformable uses beyond just being a store value. So, you know, like um, fine art is a classic example or a luxury vehicle that's never driven or these kinds of things. Gold also falls into that bucket. And so this is where we see gold as an interesting example of an asset that falls across consumable, transformable, and store value. Okay, with that set up... Um, and I'd say that framework is more or less consistent with, with my own... It is, right? it is. So we've come full circle and, um, you know, might be using slightly different words, but when I... Further evidence that I do not have original thoughts. <laughs> well, we can make the argument that none of us have original thoughts. They're all just combinations of prior thoughts with a little, you know, fairy dust. Um, so most crypto assets actually, and certainly any crypto asset that requires staking um, in order to earn value flows, in order to be a supply sider, is partially a capital asset. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of that valuation will be the net present value of value flows to supply siders. Um, and that's where it's, it's quite similar to an equity in that holding the equity gives you access to the value flows. What's different with a, with a crypto asset is you have to hold the asset and you have to work, right? Mm-hmm. Which I actually think is a better model um, because you have to work, you still have to earn it, and then you're getting value flows. But you can say that's the net present value of future value flows. I would argue the majority of crypto assets are going to end up in that realm, and whether we want to call them securities or not is, is, is a different conversation. But from a valuation perspective, capital assets um, are exploding in crypto as, as staking is exploding. Bitcoin is actually a very different beast, mm-hmm. right? Because Bitcoin holding BTC does not give me a claim to any value flow or governance rights or anything else. BTC is very much a consumable, transformable that overlaps with store value, pretty much exactly like gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's fascinating is like, no one's really figured out how to value gold longer. Like there's a bunch of theories, um, but it's not nearly as mathematical or concrete, um, in my opinion, as NPV of cash flows. And so this is where I think actually our best bet for the consumable transformables is MV equals PQ, the, the equation of exchange. 
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Voyager. Trading cryptocurrency can be tough. I'm not just talking about making smart crypto investments. I'm talking about simply finding the right places to trade. Whether it's a lack of liquidity on key trading pairs, the risk of having your account shut down or coins compromised, or just feeling like a second-class citizen versus the exchange's accredited clients, the deck can feel stacked against you and other retail investors. That's why I'm excited to tell you about a brand new trading platform that just launched called Voyager. Voyager is a fast, 100% commission-free trading app, no bullshit, that helps you trade over 20 cryptos. Best part, Voyager is a licensed crypto broker, so you don't have to worry about your account getting terminated or losing access to coins you wanna trade. Their new iOS app is crazy fast and routes your trades to a network of exchanges so you can get unmatched access to the crypto market and a better price on your trades without having to create multiple exchange accounts and take on that burden yourself. So check it out today. Sign up at investvoyager.com slash Masari to earn $25 worth of free Bitcoin when you download the Voyager iOS app and register. So that equation... Um, you have N, the monetary base, uh, multiplied by V, the velocity. That shows you the turnover of um, money in an economy, typically in a year. Um, that equals PQ. P is, say, the price of goods or services, and Q is the quantity of goods and services. Um, and you can think of these two sides of the equation. NV is really the, the demand side, mm -hmm. um, people paying and the money circulating for the supply side, the goods and services that, that an uh, economy produces. And so what I did in 2017, which was just a simple thing that turned out to be very contentious, um, was divide PQ, it's the size of the economy, by the velocity of the asset to solve for what M, the monetary base of a crypto asset, um, could be in the future. Mm -hmm. and, and you do this for all future years, and um, there's hash CIB has really taken this theory um, and to, to its endpoint mathematically and mm -hmm. done a much better job with it than I did originally, but the, the basic uh, premise holds. And so I think that we end up having a pretty big um, bifurcation between capital assets and consumable transformables that slip into being stores of value, I think we'll only have a handful of those consumable transformable store of value assets that really the store of value is the monetary premium, right? So Bitcoin and Ethereum, very credible place on that. Um, we've also invested in Decredit and Zcash, also mm -hmm. deeming those to have very credible place um, on that idea. When Ethereum switches to proof of stake, it's going to also become a capital asset. And you could argue that Decred also has capital asset components because it already has staking. And so this is where we could see an asset span cap, uh, capital asset consumable transformable and store of value in a way that we just haven't seen with asset classes before. It makes sense that it happened in crypto because this is programmable value. We can do whatever we want. We have so much more flexibility than we do in the meat space world. Do you think about all of these proof-of-stake systems um, whose rewards, quote-unquote, are almost entirely inflation rewards and no actual transaction fees. Yeah. Um, can you still think about those as capital assets? It's like running in place, right? So if you were, if you were just to perpetually issue stock dividends to your shareholders, yeah. 
it would probably be a huge pain in the ass from them from a tax and, yep. and a reporting standpoint and, and just kind of back office standpoint. But it doesn't change the market value of the company, it doesn't, right? So how do you how do you reconcile um, the difference between I think the intention of uh, some of the proof of stake systems to just yep. siphon supply out of the market when it's not being deployed or, or spent, um, and and the reality that uh, you're you're not really earning income. Right? Right. It's not it's not a true capitalization in the sense yeah. that you're earning income. You're you're just you're not losing uh, your 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 principal or, or having that diluted down right. from non participation. So, so this is a great point, super important. <clears throat> this is where um, it goes back to the price discovery and some of the capitalization conversation. Um, this is where inflation, as you said, does not grow the market cap of a company, and nor um, should it grow the network value of a crypto network. It may right now, um, because the crypto markets are still becoming efficient, but like if, if you look at Zcash, for example, network value has been much more stable mm-hmm. um, than the token price has, and that makes sense because as it inflates its supply, you know, if it's providing equal utility to the world, then network value should stay flatter. Um, inflation is a redistribution mechanism, not the value creation mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is a really important point to understand. And this is where my kind of, oh my God, when I was looking, when I was doing the staking demo, if people are not paying transaction fees to use these networks, you cannot use inflation as a reliable tool. You'll actually descend into, you will descend into hyperinflation if you actually try and print more of your assets to give more money to your supply centers. It's, it will be a mess, um, and Maximus, BTC Maximus, I think are going to be vindicated by a few big blowups in the mm-hmm. proof of stake world. Um, now, I think if you do proof of stake the right way, and um, Ethereum and Polkadot and a few of these others, I think will will give us these examples where well, Polkadot and Ethereum will approach it quite differently. But um, if you are um, using proof-of-stake inflation as a redistribution mechanism while people are paying a lot in transaction fees. And if you look at Ethereum, Ethereum's transaction fees are reaching almost on par with Bitcoin's transaction fees, which for me is mind-blowing, right? That's like, that's a big deal. Um, those transaction fees are the value flows to the supply-siders, right? And so that is the capital asset component and the valuation is really transaction fees. Um, and this is why I was kind of like, oh my God, if these networks aren't going to actually have transaction fees, then the token in a pure proof of stake system is theoretically worth zero, mm-hmm. um, and inflation is not a tool you can you can use. So we let's let's bring it back to um, reality a little bit because uh, we we I think had an important theoretical discussion, right? How should these things be valued? Yeah. Um, we know from twenty seventeen and even today. Uh, that these most of these assets are not reasonably valued, uh, and and the market is not uh, sophisticated enough, maybe to, to to for individuals to properly understand exactly what they're buying and, and what they're buying. there. Go ahead. Good thing there. I don't believe the market's um, efficient. You're not. You're not going to. No, I'm not going to argue that. Um, but I am going to argue that early stage innovation 
and this comes from my, my public market background. I'm working at ARC where we invested in the highest growth publicly traded companies that we really possibly could. Um, early stage innovation always gets priced at a fancy multiple. So high price to sales, high PE or no PE. Um, crypto assets don't necessarily have price to sales or PE. The, the, the uh, security tokens will. Um, but despite that, they are trading at fancy multiples. These multiples are going to emerge over time, so things like the MBT ratio or MBTV, or there's all kinds of things. But I think what we'll see in retrospect is they were trading at really high multiples. That actually makes sense to me. Um, because the market, uh, early stage innovation, is, has all these expectations about the future, and so it's giving you a lot of capital up front to experiment. You don't want to take too much capital for all the reasons we just discussed, um, but it's, it's, it's really the market's gift of saying, go experiment. Um, and yes, investors are going to lose risk capital, it's going to lose money on some of those experiments, make a lot of money on other ones, but the whole point is to go experiment. And this is where I get really frustrated with the tribal wars of crypto and the infighting. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like, the point of what the market is giving us right now is capital to go experiment. So that was just a little rant. You go so so is, is, is there too much capital, right, is, is, is one question. And how, how do you think about the market dynamics in the next 12 to 18 months, uh, specifically when it comes to the founders and the early investors, almost all of whom at this point are professional venture funds. Um, what happens when you see more mainnet launches and some of these fiduciaries have to think about unwinding at least yeah. portions of their positions? Yeah. Um, and it's kind of a wild west of, of you know, lockups. There's, there's no green shoe period. There's no... Well, sorry, we'll help. Provide a lot of transparency well, this is, this is, this is one of the reasons that we exist. Yes, you're going to have an exciting 12, 12 to 18 months. But the, but the teams uh, that are engaging with us are probably not the ones that are the riskiest right now, right, uh, in, in that regard. So, um, so how do you think about it, um, not in a uh, kind of an ethical sense, I mean, maybe the answer won't include this, but, um, but just as a fund manager that has basically two competing uh, sets of priorities. One, to invest for the long term because you are structured as, as, as a venture fund. And two, to make sure that you're making money on behalf of your limited partners. And it might very well make sense to sell as fast as possible out of some of these early stage positions as soon as they become public if the market value yeah. is great. Right? So how do, you, how do you reconcile those two things? Um, and how do you think about um, the alternative case where uh, there could very well be a rush to the exits. Yep. Um, and, and if you're uh, kind of higher on the, the preference totem pole, or you were investor earlier, right, yeah. and you're up 10x, um, but you know that the folks that came in after you are, are basically yeah. break even, yeah, well, they're, they're kind of shit out of luck along with any of the retail investors that start playing around with this as soon as they become liquid. So, so just talk about those dynamics and, and, um, and how you manage those relationships with the teams that you invest in or the communities, sure. and, yeah. then, and then what you think um, ultimately happens uh, in, in terms of, um, less from an investment standpoint, because I think I know the answer, but, but from a community development standpoint. Sure. Are, are some of these yeah. things dead on arrival because they raised too much at too high values too early? Yeah, so I don't think they're necessarily dead on arrival, but I think they're gonna go through a lot of pain. 
Um, and theoretically, if they fall back to cost, it's the cost of capital, which was the original raise amount, mm -hmm. um, plus some time value of money, plus whatever labor the core team put in. So maybe it's a 2x from the amount of capital they raised. Um, but a lot of them are going to come out trying to list at 10x or greater than the amount of capital raised. Um, and so I think you will see a race to the bottom. I mean, I know for a fact networks are experiencing races to the bottom. Um, it's just game theory. And this is where um, different fund structures are going to gonna come into effect. Um, in 2017, we saw a lot of people go for hot money. Um, if you got hot money in, hot money will be hot to get out. Um, and so, you know, I can speak from placeholder's perspective of what we're going to do. And again, the only um, sort of high-profile pre-network launch investment we've made is Polkadot. And I can go into the specifics of um, the really smart things I think Polkadot is doing with Kusama and actually including a network and already getting labor participating in all these things, which is part of the reason we made the investment. Um, but so that's, Polkadot will be our experiment in this. Um, all the all our other investments, we really work with our teams to raise as little capital as you need up front because capital is dilution and capital sets, each capital raise sets higher expectations. So keep expectations low, raise the capital you need as you need it, and build from the bottom up. So that's kind of been our theory with our teams all along. Um, so I'll be mostly um, a you know observer, I guess, in, in what's going to happen. And I think that as I just went through, some of them may come back to cost. Um, some of these networks might be, I mean, I can tell you from a, from a market participant angle, um, even some of our ICO um, investments or, or, or teams where they started just launching straight out of capital, um, those markets are ghost towns compared to the organically mined markets because mm -hmm. there's just not all this richness that's built. But for some of these smart contract platforms, um, they also may be ghost towns, not just in the market, but in terms of actual use. So Alex Evans, um, placeholder's crypto economics resident, has this great analogy, and hopefully he'll write a blog about it, um, of, you know, in China and some other countries, they built these immaculate cities, right? Cities with the latest and greatest everything, pre-planned cities, um, much better than you know all the old cities, and they're ghost towns. No one lives there. No community was built there. There's no emotional attachment. There's nothing. It was all pre-planned, all set forth. And so I was thinking of myself as a monkey and all of us as monkeys, because technically we're glorified chimpanzees or whatever, but we are animals in that way. Um, and so if we don't feel connection to these things or a place of belonging, then we don't go hang out in those places. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think you might see that um, for some of these, these launches. And this is where I think that um, a lot of teams, um, high-flying teams in 2017, focus too much on the technology, and maybe this is a Silicon Valley thing, focus way too much on the technology and way too little on the financial and social components. Mm -hmm. And for me, crypto networks um, that succeed are going to have to nail the financial and social components. Yes, you need technology, but technology is table stakes. This is all open source. It's all going to be commodity technology game. The, the differentiator are the financials 
and social, and you can make the argument that it's just really technology and social because the financial components are a derivative of the social component. Um, let's talk about something related to that, um, which uh, you can speak at a macro level, you know, to talk about the inner you know, workings of, of placeholder if it's sensitive. Um, how are you generally seeing investors mark their private books? Because this is a topic of a lot of conversation, not, and by the way, not just necessarily with um, pre-launch assets, but with assets that are in the market that are just very thinly traded. Um, so what, what is the um, calculus that you do there? You know, are there specialized valuation firms you know, propping up, um, how do you kind of take a principled position on what the fair value of these assets are given uh, the survival of many of these funds, maybe you to a lesser extent, um, given the 10-year structure of the fund, but certainly some hedge funds where they can face redemptions. Right. Um, this, well, is, this, yeah. is, this is a very real uh, conversation that, that uh, is going to ultimately impact the survival of some funds. That Super are real. Currently out there, and some of which are very high profile. Yeah. Um, as with a lot of things, it all comes back to incentives. Um, so, what placeholder does, um, we mark all of our private investments at cost. Exactly what we paid is what we mark them at. Um, for our positions in the liquid assets, if we have a large position in what has become an illiquid asset, um, we will discount it. We've discounted as high as fifty percent. Um, from market because I just know if I have to exit that position, I am going to collapse the market. And those might those might be things um, that we never sell. Um, if the network, if the thesis doesn't pan out, and this is where a VC has to be comfortable with some things, or actually the majority of things being zeros. Um, I'm not the vilified VC on Twitter that's out there that dumped on retail. I'm here to capitalize things that work, that make society um, you know, a, a little bit of a better place for everyone, and I will sell at a profit if I feel I have done that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's placeholder. Now, placeholder is a venture capital firm um, where our annual management fees are taken as a percent of the capital we raise. Um, mm -hmm. So we raise $150 million. That is very stable. Year after year after year, we get that. And that's by design, right? Venture capital firms are meant to invest. We are the venture, venturing in first as capital into, into these things. And so um, because that is so risky, um, the structure has evolved over time to provide stability and certainty, both for ourselves, but also for our teams. We're never going to be facing redemption. We're never going to be selling out of our teams, of our assets, when they can least afford it because everyone's in the bear market because we set up the structure from, from the beginning. Um, hedge funds have a lot of variety in their structures, um, but they tend to take their annual management fees as a percent of assets in their management. And this is where your incentive is to keep your book as high as possible because then you can take the management fee off of that. Um, now that sets high expectations, right? And um, then you have to live with those high expectations. I personally am a person that likes keeping expectations as low as possible. Um, I grew up in Hawaii. It's kind of got this humble culture where you don't go around and 
beat your chest, though I found myself occasionally beating my chest on Twitter and regretting it. And set expectations low um, and outperform. There's a saying there that um, my mind's not grasping at the moment. Um, but you know, not everything, everyone does that, and then um, you have to sleep in the bed that you make. Mm -hmm. uh, true words have uh, not been spoken in this industry. So um, there's there's kind of one last topic uh, that I wanted to touch on, and it's how do you think about valuations in a market where you really can't do fundamentals yet? Maybe you guys, as you think about like early stage assets or investing, you know, uh, either pre-launch or, or just some undervalued public assets, you, you might be able to get away with it. But in general, everything is about relative valuation right now. Would you agree? For the most part. For how do you invest in a market like that? For most market participants, um, things are relative valuation. So, so to, to just set the stage, valuation can be fundamental valuation, um, things like the net present value of cash flows, or MP equals PQ for the consumable transformables. It's, those are bottom-up models where you're starting um, with all these inputs that describe the system and ultimately culminate in a present value for all the future activity um, of this network or company or whatever it might be. Fundamental valuations are the whole holy grail that hopefully we we get to in crypto. I mean, I'm going to say that we definitely get to in crypto, and note that it took equities 300 years really to arrive on uh, consensus fundamental valuation techniques. I think if crypto does it in 30 years, I'd be happy. We're 10 years in, that would be an order of magnitude faster than equity guys did. But what's hard about fundamental valuations is there's a lot of math that goes into it. Um, and so, you know, we need more and more experts focusing on this, taking it seriously. And then once theories are put out, the market actually has to come to consensus on those theories. And that's an even slower process because it's humans, it's our monkey brains achieving consensus. Um, and so that's a long haul. I'm seeing great progress um, along it, but long haul. The other side is relative valuations, things like price to sales, price to equity in crypto. It's the network value to transactions ratio, or network value to token value ratio, or the worst of them all, network value to network value, especially if you're not taking into consideration fully diluted supply, and you guys are more expert in this than anyone else. Um, I think that the fact that network value is the most commonly used relative valuation metric in crypto is maybe one of the things that makes me most sad um, because it's what allows some of the, um, say, less palatable actors in the crypto space to manipulate people um, uh -huh. to list at really low prices with really high supplies or things. I mean, we've all seen the um, I don't want to use names, but this asset said, you know, half of a penny. Imagine if it gets to Bitcoin's price. Oh, but supply is 100,000 times greater than Bitcoin's price. So that scares me. Um, but I think that, you know, we use relative valuation techniques um, to compare, and, and this, this comes from my crypto training, or my equity training, we only use it to compare like for like assets, right? So 
If you're going to use NVT ratio, use it to compare Bitcoin decredited Zcash, right? Those are cryptocurrencies, proof of work based for the most part, um, that have um, the same number of coins and are very similar. So, you know, use it to compare there and also use it to compare an asset to itself over time. Um, and so that's very similar to equities, right? I wouldn't use price to sales to compare Netflix to IBM because they're totally different companies with different cost structures, different purposes uh, in the world. And so that's, for example, why I wouldn't compare Bitcoin to Ethereum necessarily on um, network value to transactions ratio. I think that uh, a, a good ratio that we recently created at Placeholder, which we need to formalize um, the, the math and numbers behind, and this is for smart contract platforms, is actually uh, network value to token value. Mm -hmm. So Ethereum's network value uh, divided by all of the, the value of all of the tokens that have been issued on top of Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And Ethereum trades at something like two times that value. Um, all of its smart contract platforms are double to triple to 10x that valuation. And so that tells me Ethereum as a asset um, issuance and security platform is way undervalued relative to its peers. Or put another way, it's providing way more utility to the world for the price that it trades at. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that you know, more standardization around um, better relative valuation metrics than just pure network value is very needed. Um, it's a service that you guys provide for the space that I'm thankful for. Um, and it's really having um, more and more watering, intellectual watering pools um, like you guys, where everyone comes and says, okay, these are the standard relative valuation techniques, these are how these clusters of assets stack up against each other, um, here are fundamental valuation techniques, you know, this is the latest and greatest, here's the work to be done, and we just keep iterating, iterating, iterating. What do you, uh, what do you think is the highest signal metric that you've come across? So we don't share I'm curious, I'm curious, I'm curious if, if our thinking lines up because I have a very clear. Well, it depends on the asset. It, it, it depends on the asset. And this is where, like, even with equity valuations, you can get very bespoke, right? Like, our models on Tesla are insanely deep and bespoke. Um, I would say that for Bitcoin, um, the thing I watch more than anything else is the accumulation patterns. Um, the Holloways, or mm -hmm. um, there's the um, there's a few self-side firms that have, have done a good job with this. Um, and this is because I think of Bitcoin's primary utility of the world as a store of value. So I want to see how people are accumulating or selling the asset. Um, NBT, Pavlich Keen's NBT ratio, um, is, is good as well. Um, I'm surprised that you're still sticking with that one. Still sticking with NBT? So I don't deny that MBT has problems, mm -hmm. um, but I think that you know it does it, it does have signal. I do know so placeholder doesn't trade, but I do know firms that trade mm -hmm. effectively with that signal. And the the key with these signal, signals, and again, I, well, this is unqualified opinions, so this is perfect. I'm not a trader, but I'm talking about trading. Having watched friends that aren't the traders, they're often looking for multiple signals to line up, right? You got MBT, you got accumulation patterns, you got the technicals and the charts, and when everything is saying go, 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 this is a great price, that's when you're entering that position. So it's not, it's hard to say there's a single thing. Mm -hmm. um, 
with Ethereum right now, you know, I've been looking at MVTV, which mm -hmm. just screams that Ethereum's undervalued to me. Um, someone showed me recently a network value to gas consumer ratio, which I thought was fantastic and also shows Ethereum coming into support. Um, and then, you know, non-fundamentals, there are the price technicals, and, and technicals are so contentious, um, but you know what? Technicals work in the sense that they show you what the market's consensus is, right? If everyone is agreeing to, to, tech, to technicals, look at Bitcoin's 200-week moving average. That was so reliable in this bear market, was so reliable in the past bear market. Will it be reliable in the bear market to come? I can't say for sure, but probably, mm -hmm. right? And so this is where um, it's, it's a combination of things that we end up using. With the smaller networks, what, what I'm looking for, so like we, we took a big position in Maker um, last year into this year. Um, what I was watching is price of NKR was coming down as DAI outstanding was going up. Um, and so DAI outstanding is, is um, a function of the utility of Maker's credit facility. And so what I'm always looking for, what I'd love to see, is if an asset price is cratering that I know has good cryptoeconomic fundamentals, um, if it's cratering while the utility of the network is going up, because that basically to me shows, you know, the market is going this baby out with the bathwater, um, fundamentals are improving, but eventually the market is going to catch up to that fact, and I want to start building a position now. We have to, when we build the positions in the public market, we do take into account um, technical indicators because I don't want to get destroyed trying to catch a ball in knife. Mm -hmm. Not that we've done a perfect job of it, but we've done a pretty good job. We also got fortunate with closing the fund in January of 2018 and buying through this, this very market. Um, but you have to take all of these factors into consideration. And that, that, that's why it's hard for retail. It's not easy. Yes. It's not easy. So the uh, maybe the, the, the closing line, the punchline, is you should trust us with your money because we, we study this stuff all day. <laughs> or just buy Bitcoin, either decred and Zcash and hold. Yeah. Um, well, Zcash, that's probably an entire other half hour. Maybe. I think, I think, uh, but I, I don't want to talk about it just because <laughs> you and I, I think, generally agree on this thesis, and I don't want it to be like a, a show session. Well, keep in mind to the listeners with Zcash that the first halving is upcoming in October 2020, and the thing, people love to bash Zcash right now. But Zcash is going through its period of high inflation, mm -hmm. right? And so this is where I watch network value, not price. Um, and you've got buying opportunities right now and potentially into the halving. And then when the halving comes around, half of all Zcash that will ever be in existence will have been created. Um, if, you're, if you're buying Hashgraph, Polkadot, Telegram, when they come out at multi-billion dollar valuations and you're shitting on Zcash, you don't really understand inflation. <laughs> it's, it's like the, the shorthand. Yeah. Um, so, but it'll it'll be uh, fascinating to watch that. I think it, I think there will be a reversal, but um, again, we're not going to make too many price predictions. Certainly and not a lot of investment investment advice. These are unqualified opinions. Um, yes, and and Chris and I have both uh, taken turns getting our faces blown off in this market. Everyone gets it wrong. And so, yeah. yeah. Here's maybe a closing thought. Everyone gets stuff wrong. Um, you know. Personally, and for everyone else, I think we do better um, when we admit when we were wrong, because then we learn, um, as opposed to putting up the ego and being like, no, I was never wrong, I'm never going to learn. Um, you can't help but get it wrong in such an asset space. You know, you know what's interesting? I think it, it gets, it's very easy um, 
if you just get into the habit of, of kind of deconstructing your past performance and, and decisions, it may be the, the easiest way to start um, admitting that you're wrong is to recognize when you were wrong for the right reasons, mm -hmm. right? Where the thesis was correct, but the probabilities, you know, you had the probabilities wrong or, or you know, some other event that you didn't really foresee ended up, you know, kind of uh, dominating the, 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 the uh, investment thesis. And a perfect example of this for me is actually Ethereum. Mm -hmm. I was wrong for several years, but I picked for the right reasons. I didn't buy the token sale. I'm glad I didn't because if I had, I would have sold it anyway. If, you, if anyone if anyone knew how dysfunctional, the early Ethereum community was in the Ethereum Foundation, there's going to be a book or multiple books about it out soon, I'm sure. But anyone with insider knowledge of how dysfunctional it was, um, it was just, it was crazy, right? So there's no way that you, you would have rationally, there was a, a situation where you may have had too much information in some cases with these assets. Um, and then frankly, I don't think the thesis changed until the ICO market, because mm -hmm. that was the first time that there was any money. Um, versus this world computer gas that was very, uh, you know, novel, but not, not yeah. compelling as an asset. But, but once, you, once you kind of open up the door to, okay, I know I was wrong, here's why, um, it makes it easier to say, here's what I was thinking at the time, and, and, and these like sub-theses were the things that were really wrong, um, versus just, I'm an idiot. Right. So, so if you're really stubborn and like ego-driven, it's going to be tough to ever just say like, I'm a total idiot, like I should have seen this, this, and this. But it becomes much easier if you're like, I had 90% of it, right? But the linchpin of the thesis, I really got, I really got wrapped on that, right? Um, and, and, and so, uh, easing into that, right? Yeah. Post-processing is important. And you raised uh, another key thing. Everyone talks about, oh, I should have bought Bitcoin at X. Very few people talk about how hard it is to hold that Bitcoin yes. or to hold that Ether or whatever it might be. And so it's this idea of um, Joel has a saying that he got, I think, from Marcus Aurelius, of it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to regret it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and often we make decisions and then we go on this path and then we look over at this other path and we're like, oh, I should have made that decision. But what we don't realize is if we went that path, we'd be looking over at this path saying, oh, I should have made that decision. And so, you know, I bought things at the wrong time, I sold things at the wrong time, I've made tons of mistakes, um, but on the whole, um, I'm up, right? Um, and I'm up from a fiscal perspective, but much more importantly, from an intellectual perspective, from a community perspective, from all these things. And, and, it's, and it's helpful, um, especially here uh, from guys like you, Chris, because uh, I always, one of my recommendations, and this applies to me, it applies to you, it applies to Nick Carter, um, Kyle Solani, so many uh, young, non-technical folks that have gotten into the industry and have still done very well. There, there's, I think, a misconception that you need to be a developer to, to make yeah. any inroads. Um, almost all of them have written relentlessly mm -hmm. and expose themselves to being wrong mm -hmm. in a public setting. Yeah. Um, and because the industry, especially social media, is so brutal, it's like iron sharpens iron. If you can, if you can, if you can, if cut, with if you can cut all the kind of bullshit and hurt feelings aside and you can just like, you yeah. know, grow a pair or like picking up your skin, 
um, then it becomes uh, probably the, the most relentless learning environment that you could possibly yeah, have. Yeah, it is. It has its own draw. And you're losing money, so it's like anytime you're wrong, you're like adding insult to injury, which doubly helps you in, in terms of the learning process. So <laughs> I, I know we've been on it forever, and we, have to, we probably have to call it here, but I, so someone asked me recently if I could change something about crypto, what would it be? And I said the tribalism. Mm -hmm. We talked about it from the experimentation standpoint, but I think also from this, the feedback standpoint, like tell people when they're wrong, but do it with class. Um, and Decred is actually a good example of this. For the most part, their debates do not devolve into name calling or um, you know, that really toxic stuff. Occasionally, but more rarely. And I think it all comes from the top. And so, you know, more networks, more teams, um, I hope will create kind of these candid but kind environments. I know we have candid but kind of mean. Um, and I don't want to exist in the kind of mean world in the future. I want to. I think the, the I think the world is just kind of mean, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll try to keep things nice here anyway. <laughs> Um, Chris Bernisky, a placeholder, uh, at C Bernisky on Twitter. Uh, when he does tweet, uh, they're, they're usually to some pretty coaching point. So follow him, uh, follow placeholder. Uh, probably one of the portfolios that are running capital. Uh, I want to, I want to mimic just in terms of the portfolio selection. I, I just tend to like many of the projects you guys have backed. Thank you. But, um, and I think it's because, uh, you and I share the, the value-oriented investor thesis. We've been doing this for a long time. Exactly. Um, so thank you again, uh, Chris, and, and everybody. I uh, hope you enjoyed this record-setting unqualified opinions, at least in terms of length. I'm sure it's probably going to be very well in terms of eyeballs and listens as well. Um, until tomorrow, uh, where we have another great show coming up. Uh, thank you for joining us. And uh, until next time, peace. wrap thanks for listening new episodes of unqualified opinions go live weekdays at noon eastern time you can follow me in the meantime on twitter at two bit idiots if you want to continue the conversation or troll me otherwise i'll see you next week